this is the history of the family of Isaac, the son of Abraham. When Isaac was 40 years old, he married Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, an Aramean from Padan Aram, the sister of Laban. Isaac pleaded with the Lord to give Rebekah a child because she was childless. So the Lord answered Isaac's prayer, and, and his wife Rebekah became pregnant with twins. But the two struggled in the womb with each other. She went and asked the Lord about this. Why is this happening to me, she asked. The Lord told her, the sons in your womb will become two rival nations. One nation will be stronger than the other. The descendants of your older son will serve the descendants of your younger. And when the time came, the twins were born. The first was very red at birth. He was covered with so much hair that one would think he was wearing a piece of clothing. So they called him Esau. Then the other twin was born with his hand gasping Esau's heel. So they called him Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when the twins were born. As the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open fields, while Jacob was the kind of person who liked to stay at home. Isaac loved Esau in, in particular because of the wild game he brought home, but Rebekah favored Jacob. Thank you, gentlemen. Just a show of hands in the audience. Want to know who in here ran track at some point in their life? Oh, wow, yeah. Look around, people. These are the crazy ones among us. These are the crazy ones. Track is grueling and awful. I ran it and hated every moment of it. Um, I played basketball and football, and then after those two sports were over in the school year, uh, I did not want to go into track. Um, I wanted to do a country club sport like tennis or something like that. You know, it seemed very soft and easy. And so uh, after basketball season wrapped up, I would always run down to the tennis courts, which were just below uh, the track. And uh, there I put on my deck shoes and my short khaki shorts and tie the sweater around my neck and, you know, play tennis. And we take breaks and eat caviar and sip sparkling grape juice. And that's what we did, right? That's tennis. And, but we had a track coach. His name was Coach Mack. And every year, I would immediately go into track and Coach Mack would, or into tennis, and Coach Mack would look down and see me down there. And so he'd march onto the tennis court and be like, Garner, let's go. And I'd drop the caviar and I'd go, okay, you know, and I'd head up to the track. And I hated track because it's tough, man. We just, they're like, here's practice. Go run for three hours. All right, you're better. You know, that was, that was practice. And so, I did that, but lo and behold, we got good, which is, you know, not surprising. Hard work actually pays off. And uh, so I ran the 400, one lap around the track, and I was also part of the mile relay team where every guy does a lap around the track, four guys, and we do that. And so we had worked and worked and worked, and actually this my sophomore year of high school, did a great job. And so we put together a really, really fast mile relay, and um, I was the second leg of the mile relay, which is also known as the fastest leg, or maybe the slowest, I can't remember. But anyways, um, so we get into our meets, and we're, we're competing, we're winning. I'm like, yeah, okay, this is awesome. We're so excited about this, right? And comes to district track meet. And so we're having it right up the road here at Texarkana, and uh, we're there meeting Mount Pleasant, Texarkana, Silver Springs. I was at North Lamar in Paris High School, so there we are. And we've been beaten a couple times before, but man, we were really putting it together. And so 
Mile Relay came, last event of the evening, this little mile relay. And uh, if we win this one, we win the district championship. North Lamar does, and we're going on to regionals to run the mile relay. And so we're pumped. And so uh, second leg, I go. We start to get a little bit of a lead. Third leg, it stretches. And our guy on the fourth leg, the end, man, he's just so fast. And, and he's starting to stretch that lead out. It's about 10, 20, 30 yards. And so as he's coming down the final 100, down that straightaway to the finish line, we got this in the back. And I, I'm excited. I'm pumped. We worked all season for this, right? And so I'm just like, let's go, Lee. Let's go. Let's go. You know, I'm like cheering him on. And so he crosses the finish line. We win. Cannons and streamers go off. We get the American flag, wrap it around. You know, we're taking pictures for Sports Illustrated signing. It, well, maybe it didn't happen like that, but uh, it felt that way. I thought it should have happened like that. But we're celebrating together. We won district. We won the track meet. We're moving on. About that time, in the midst of our celebration, the rules official comes up to us and says, you've been disqualified. You lost. Like, what in the world? What happened? He said, when you were jumping alongside, you were pacing the runner, and you have been disqualified. And so it all fell on me. I'm like, I wasn't pacing him. I was just celebrating with him. And that didn't convince the rules judge. And so we, we lost. We, we did not place in the meet at all. We did not go on to regionals. It was just over. And I just felt that weight sit on me that I had messed up, and I messed it up for everybody. And so I just start losing. I'm crying. I'm like, this would never happen in tennis, you know. Um, <laughs> so I'm just booing. And finally, you know, my parents see me. I usually ride the bus home, but maybe just for fear of my life or I don't know what it was. They're like, here, you can ride home with us. And I remember going to Red Lobster in, in Texarkana. I drowned my sorrows in Cheddar Bay Biscuits and the Ultimate Shrimp Feast. And uh, I got over it real quick. You know, I was fine after that. Um, but I remember that, right? It was so heavy on me that I messed up one thing, and I messed up a lot of stuff with it. And maybe you've been there in some lighthearted moments. Maybe you're the one who messed up your kindergarten circus or your middle school production, right, or the high school track meet. But maybe for you sitting in this room today, it's a little more serious than that. Maybe you've messed up and, and you've ruined your family and you've ruined relationships and you've ruined your reputation. Maybe you've messed up and it's cost you. It's cost you friendships. It's cost you your job. It's cost significant money. Maybe you've messed up, you've made some mistakes, and it has just changed the course of your life from here on out. And every decision will be affected by that moment. Right? We all feel that. We've all gone through that. We've experienced what it's like to walk through these earthly consequences of our mistakes and our mess-ups. But have you ever stopped to wonder and to think, when I mess up, when I make a mistake, what kind of ripples does that have in the spiritual world? When I mess up, how does that truly affect God? We thought about that. Today we're going to look at two characters, Jacob and Esau, as we study through the book of Genesis. And we're going to see that they are not uh, great guys. I mean, they're actually very flawed. They mess up significantly. And I want us to see how did they mess up? Where did they go awry? And what did that do? How did it affect their relationship with God? So grab a Bible and turn with me to Genesis chapter 25. Genesis chapter 25. We'll start in verse 29. Thinking how our mistakes affect our relationship with God. Genesis 25 verse 29. Once Jacob was cooking stew. And Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I'm exhausted. And therefore his name was called Edom. And Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. 
And Esau said, I'm about to die. What use is a birthright to me? And Jacob said, swear to me now. And so he swore to him, and he sold his birthright to Jacob. And then Jacob gave Esau the bread and the lentil stew. He ate and he drank, and he rose and went his way. And thus Esau despised his birthright. So when we look at this passage, right, we see that Esau comes in. It says he's exhausted, kind of a literal translation. He's famished. He's starving to death. He is so hungry. And when he asks, hey, can I have some of that stew right there, more of a literal translation is, let me swallow, let me gulp some of that red. It's kind of the way it comes out. I imagine it's like Beauty and the Beast when they finally sit down to dinner for the first time. The beast just like, whoa, right? This is what Esau is saying. Like, let me swallow, let me gulp some of that right now. And Jacob being the heel grabber, the overreacher, the manipulator, the deceiver, he sees an opportunity and he seizes it. And he says, sell me your birthright. Now, the birthright is super important. Always would go to the firstborn son unless something like this happens, right? But here's what the birthright would include. Number one, it would include a spiritual authority. When the father passes, whoever had the birthright would become the spiritual leader, the spiritual authority of the family. The second thing that would include is judicial authority. When the father passed, whoever has the birthright sets the rules, sets the law of the family. They become the judicial authority. And third, maybe most important is this. To have a birthright means you get double portion of inheritance. So if it's you and your brother and daddy dies and he's got $6 million in the bank, birthright gets $4 million, every other sibling too. Right? You get double what any of your other siblings have. And here we see Esau is selling this, is trading this for a cup of soup. So we think about all the flaws we see in Esau here. Number one, he exaggerates his circumstance. He's not about to die, right? He's using embellishing language. Like he eats his food and he just gets up and walks out, okay? So he's exaggerating his circumstances. I'm starving to death. What good is a birthright to me if I die? Second thing we see is this, is that Esau, he exalts the desires of his flesh above the spiritual. Now this is fascinating, right? The author of Hebrews, writing in Hebrews 11, goes back and reaches and brings this story to the forefront to make a point and example. Let me read you that passage in Hebrews. It's Hebrews eleven fifteen. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. And no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy. Who like Esau sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards when he desired to inherit the blessing. He was rejected and he found no chance to repent though he sought it with tears. Isn't it interesting, right, as the, the author of Hebrews is talking about sexual immorality. Of all the examples in Scripture, of all the examples in history, the author uses Esau and partners it with sexual immorality. Why? Because Esau is a prime example of putting the desires of the flesh above the desires of the spirit. It's one of his major flaws. Another one is this, is that Esau exchanges short-term pleasure for long-term satisfaction. He has no capacity for delayed gratification. He's just like, now. And every time I hear that, I think about the marshmallow experiment. Maybe you've heard of that. They take three-year-olds to six-year-olds and kind of do a sociological, psychological study. And they, they put them in a room by themselves. And they put one big, fat marshmallow on the plate, right on the table in front of them. And they say, if you want it, you can have it. Right now, it's all yours. Just dig into it. 
but if you wait 10 minutes, I'll be back with another marshmallow, right? And then the video footage from this is hilarious. It's these kids who are like, oh, I don't know. You know, they don't know what to do. Should I eat it now? Should they not, right? And they do this experiment. They, they figure out, here's the kids who waited. Here's the kids who didn't. Now, listen to the, uh, the, the, the summary. Children who were willing to delay gratification waited to receive the second marshmallow, they ended up having higher SAT scores, lower levels of substance abuse, lower likelihood of obesity. They ended up had better response to stress, better social skills reported by their parents, and generally better scores in a range of other measures. The researchers followed these children for more than 40 years, and over and over and over again, the group who waited patiently for the second marshmallow succeeded in whatever capacity they were measuring. Esau is the kid who just snatches the marshmallow and eats it before the researchers ever out of the room, right? He's like, boom, is it over? Can I go? Right? He, he denies this delayed gratification. He doesn't want, he wants immediate right now. And so it says, the, the, the author kind of makes this commentary statement, Esau, des, Esau despised his birthright. He could care less about it. He was flipping about it, would let it go for nothing, right? There's a big, big mistake, a big flaw, a big mess up. It's actually just utter stupidity, right? I want you to see like how dumb this is. And why would people, why would Esau do dumb things? Even when they know it's wrong, you're giving up judicial authority, spiritual authority, and you're giving up a double portion of inheritance. Why would you do that? Interesting enough, some sociologists did a study about, about this kind of collective behavior. And so what they did is they looked at Wilt Chamberlain. Will Chamberlain played for 14 years in the National Basketball Association, 14 years. His third year in the league, he had his highest free throw percentage ever at 61%. He would never come close to shooting that again. He would shoot as low as 38% one year, okay? So in that one year, his third year in the league, 61%. He'd never get it close again. And so what was it about that one year? That one year, he actually scored the 100-point game. He was 28 for 32 from the free throw line when he scored 100 points in one game. But he never got close again. Why? The difference about that one year is when he got to the free throw line, he shot it like this. He did a granny shot, underhanded, right? 61% best year ever. But then every other year he goes back to doing this, down to as low as 38%. And so we study that and we go, why? And what sociologists come up with is this idea of this threshold of collective behavior. Collective behavior is simply this. It's this idea that doing things, we do things that aren't best for us just because of what everybody else does. Everybody else in the league is shooting like this, so I'm just going to shoot like that and I'll take my 38%, right? And it's this idea of threshold, like how many other people have to do something before you jump in and do it. For Will Chamberlain, it was a high threshold. i got to have some other people doing this or I'm not going to do it, right? But for Esau, talk about the lowest threshold possible, right? No one's selling their birthright. Why would you give up spiritual authority? Why would you give up judicial authority? Why would you want half the amount of inheritance you can have? No one's doing that. So talk about dumb. Talk about stupidity. Talk about a mess up. Here's Esau, right? Just selling his birthright away for a can of Campbell's thick and chunky. <laughs> Jacob, he's still to blame in here. He, you know, if Esau despises birthright, Jacob despises brother. 
and he used his brother's pain for his own selfish personal gain. Both of them, a lot of mess-ups, a lot of mistakes in here. So how does that affect their relationship with God? In the spiritual realm, what does this do? Right? That's what we're thinking. That's what we're asking. One more story. It's Genesis 27. Long chapter. I don't want to read the whole thing to you. I'll just summarize it. In Genesis 27, there's five scenes, five frames. The first, each has two characters. The first starts with this. It's Isaac and Esau. Isaac, as he's on his deathbed, his eyesight is gone. He calls Esau and says, Esau, come. Before I pass, before I go away, I want to bestow on you the blessing. So go out, take your weapons, go to the field, kill some game, bring it back, make me a tasty meal. We'll eat it and I'll bless you. That's frame number one. Frame number two is this. It's Rebecca and Jacob. Rebecca overhears this conversation and she runs to her son Jacob and says, Jacob, Jacob, we've got to act now. Your father's about to bless Esau with the blessing. He's out killing game. You, go get two young goats. Bring them to me. I'll whip up the meal. What's interesting is Jacob pumps the brakes here and he says, I'm not so sure. What, what if my dad discovers it's me? And what if he brings a curse on me? It really stalls Jacob and Rebecca says, just shut up and do what you're told. Go get the goats. If he curses you, I'll take it. We cut to scene three. The meal's been prepared. They take some of Esau's best clothes and they dress them on Jacob and she sends him in. He goes in and says, hey, dad, it's me, Esau, your firstborn. And immediately Isaac's on to him. He says, how is it that you got the game so quickly? Takes a little while to go out to the field, to hunt, to kill game, to bring it back and prepare it. Now here it is in 30 minutes. And look what Jacob does. He invokes the name of the Lord in his lie. He says, oh, the God you love, he gave me favor. Isaac doesn't quite buy it. He says, get over here, let me feel you. So he goes and he holds out his hand. Luckily, Rebecca thought to put goat skin over his arms, his hand, and the back of his neck. Isaac feels of him. He says, feels like Esau, but sure doesn't sound like him. Promise to me that you're Esau. Jacob says, I am. They eat the meal together, right? Finally, Isaac still got an inkling. He's not so sure. He says, come over here and kiss me. And so Jacob, pretending to be Esau, comes over and he leans over to give his dad a kiss. His dad takes one whiff and smells Esau's clothes. And that was enough to tip the scale. He said, okay, I'll bless you. Feels like you, smells like you, doesn't sound like you, but I can't see. And so he goes and he proceeds to give Jacob Esau's blessing. And here's what the blessing entold. He said, I give you the dew of heaven and the fat of the earth. Now, that's important. That's agricultural fertility, right? In an arid community, in an arid climate, this is everything. Hey, you're going to live in a place where you'll have crops and it'll be fertile. This is a good thing. The second thing he does is he establishes this kind of national and familial supremacy. He says, nations are going to bow down to you. Your brothers will bow down to you. The third thing he does is he links it up with the Abrahamic covenant and has the words that God says to Abraham, those who bless you, I'll be blessed, and those who curse you, I will curse. And so Jacob did it. He deceived his father. He stole the blessing. He immediately leaves. And the author does a great job, almost as if the tent flaps just shut before Esau comes bursting in the other side. 
hey, Dad, I'm here with your food. I'm ready for my blessing. And Isaac goes, who did I just speak to? They find out it's Jacob, and the text says that Esau or Isaac started violently trembling. And so Esau, then he begs his father, he goes, please tell me you have some blessing left from me. Give me something. Promise me you didn't give it all to him. And Isaac said, I've blessed him, and he will be blessed. He said, it's irreversible. I have nothing for you, Esau, not even a crumb. Actually, what he does is he kind of gives an anti-blessing to Esau. He reinforces what he gave to Jacob. He said, Esau, you will not live where the dew of heavens and the fat of the earth will be. You won't have peace. You'll live by sword. You will serve your brother. And at this, it says that Esau cried out. The words cried out, it's the same words used when we're describing the Egyptian plagues. When the firstborn in every house in Egypt died, that morning they woke up and it said Egypt cried out. It's the same word to describe what Esau's doing here. He's mad. He's upset. He screams, my brother's deceived me twice now. And he vows to kill Jacob. He only but waits till his father has passed away. Out of maybe respect, we don't know why. But he chooses to wait. Scene five. Rebecca hears. She discovers Esau's plan, and she goes to Jacob, and she says, you know what, Jacob? you got to get out of here. you got to flee. So she kind of makes up a story, like, I'm really bothered that Esau's marrying these Hittite women. I want Jacob to go marry in the family. So she sends him to Uncle Laban up in Haran. She may not see him for 20 years, her favorite son. She may not ever see him again. We don't know, right? So talk about a dysfunctional family, right? This is insane. What you're about to experience at Thanksgiving and Christmas is nothing compared to this crew. (laughs) Jacob knows he shouldn't do this, but he does it anyways. He disrespects his father. He claims to be someone he's not. He uses deception through disguise. He falsely claimed that God gave him favor. He tells more lies. He gives his father a traitor's kiss like Judas, and he steals the blessing. Man, we look at this family, we look at Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Esau, and they are messed up. So how do their mess-ups, how does their sin, how do their mistakes affect the plan of God? It doesn't affect it one bit. Our mess-ups do not mess up God's plan. That's what we're studying all across campus today, from children, two-year-olds to 18-year-olds. We're learning that, man, when God has a plan and he has established it and he has spoken it, it's done. It's going to happen just like he said it's going to happen, even in spite of our mess-ups and mistakes. What Jacob and Esau just read to you is Genesis 25. And it said the children would struggle together within her womb, Rebecca's. And she says, if this is thus, why is this happening to me? And she inquired of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two temples from with you shall be divided, and one shall be stronger than the other. The older will serve the younger. This was God's plan. No amount of mistakes, no amount of mess-ups, no amount of sin would thwart that plan. It was done. Now, by no means were their actions commendable, if that's the way God wanted it accomplished. Actually, what they showed is complete lack of faith and trust. 
They said, oh, we'll just take matters into our own hand. We'll try to make it happen the way we think it should happen, just like Adam and Eve in the garden and just like Sarah and Abraham with their maidservant, Hagar. Right? They're taking it into their own hands. And so we think about this, that you know what? God's plan cannot be thwarted. It can't be messed up by our mess-ups. You know, we think about the, the Abrahamic covenant, right? It's, it's so important, so interesting. Here's what God, he comes to Abraham, calls him out of Ur the Chaldeans. And Abraham's not a believer at this time. He's a pagan. But he trusts in Yahweh, and he gets up, and he goes, and he follows, and it's counted as righteousness. And God says, hey, you're going to be great people. You're going to have a great nation, yet he has no children, and his wife is barren. But God says, know what? I'm making a plan. I'm going to make a covenant with you. And here's why covenant is so important. It's so much better than contract. Because a contract says, you do your part, and I'll do mine. But a covenant says, I'll do my part, even when you don't do yours. And so God enters into this with Abraham. It's his plan. And so the way that they would show the sign of that covenant is they'd take a bunch of animals and they'd cut them in half and they'd lay their bloody carcasses in a corridor. And both parties would come together in the middle to make covenant as if saying, if I break this covenant, may what happened to these animals happen to me. Now when God makes covenant with Abraham, Abraham is not a participatory party. He's knocked out and asleep, and it's God who comes the whole way. It is an unconditional covenant. God is saying, I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to do what I choose to do in spite of you. You follow me. You obey me. You mess up. You sin. You run away. I'm still going to accomplish my plan. He's flexing his sovereignty muscles here. He's been doing this all through Genesis upsetting the birth order and you're supposed to the older you want to covet that position to be the firstborn not really in genesis you look at cain who killed abel you look at ishmael who was the firstborn but he's sent away you look at this with jacob and esau think about leah and rachel even joseph's the younger one and his older brothers the ones who mistreat God is flexing his sovereignty. Sarah's barren. Rebecca's barren. So when you get to the end of Genesis and you look back over the text, all you can say was nothing but God. He was at work carrying out his plan in spite of broken, flawed human individuals. Right? So that's their plan to be the older, serve the younger, for the Abrahamic covenant. But what's, what's our plan? What is God's general plan for you and I? To me, I think one of the best summations of this plan is found in the first chapter of Ephesians. Let me read it to you. God chose us in him, even before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose and plan of his will to the praise of the glorious grace which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and all insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan before the foundations of the world to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth, In him we've obtained an inheritance, a birthright, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. What is God's general plan for you and I? It's this. 
is that Jesus would humble himself and leave the throne of heaven. That he would put on flesh and enter the world. He'd move into the neighborhood. That he would live the life that we couldn't live and die the death that we should have died. That he would take our place on the cross. He would bear our sin and pay our penalty and take our punishment. That he would defeat death and raise from the grave and offer us his perfection. Offer us his righteousness. If by faith in Christ we trust in him. Then at the end of all time, he's going to put it all back together the way he intended in Genesis 1. And you and I, we ain't messing that up. And there's peace in that and freedom in that. And hope in that, that God has established a plan. He knows how it's going to end, and he's going to accomplish it in spite of us. So what's the big deal? If God's plan, if our mess-ups don't mess up his plan, then why bother trying not to mess up? Why not just live our life, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die? Why not pursue that type of lifestyle? It's because of this. Our mess-ups don't mess up God's plan, but our mess-ups... They make us miss out. I mean, think about Isaac. Think about the relationship he had with his two sons. He played favorites. He pursued Esau, but despised Jacob. Think about the relationship with his wife. Think about Esau, who sold his birthright. You think he missed out? Think about Rebecca, her favorite son, the son she loved. She had to send him away and maybe never saw him for 20 years, maybe never saw him again her whole life. Think about how her marriage was. Think about how her relationship was with her other son, Esau. What about Jacob? His relationship with his father after he deceived him. His relationship with his brother. His brother wanted to kill him. Then he doesn't even get to be with his mom. They absolutely missed out. And sometimes we're like Esau. We despise our spiritual birthright. We pursue the flesh more than the spirit. We want the short-term pleasure rather than long-term satisfaction. Sometimes we're like Jacob. We lie, we cheat, we steal, we deceive, we manipulate, and we miss out. Sin is simply this. It's a cheap substitution. It's an artificial filler for the best God has for you. If you know me, I love to cook. One of my most famous dishes I'm always making and bringing apart is this. It's creamy jalapeno, baby. And I used to live in Austin, and we go to Chewy's. All the time. And I eat so much creamy jalapeno. I spend a ton of money on that stuff. And I'm like, I can make this at home. So I scoured the internet, tried all the, the recipes, and I found it out. And I perfected it. Mine's better than Chewy's, okay? It's a little bit more smoky, a little bit more creamy. You got to have some, right? But I take this recipe and I guard it. I protect it. Because if I don't have this, I'm nothing at parties, okay? And so I hold on to this. And only a few people I have given this out to. But here's the deal. When I give it out to people, I just tell them, like, Kind of the recipe, but I don't give them all of it. And they, they go and they make it and they say, it's not as good as yours. And I'm like, I know, right? And so here's, here's what it comes down to. It comes down to the mayonnaise. And if you don't use the exact mayonnaise I use, it ain't going to taste right. Right? If you, if you put an artificial filler, some cheap substitute, you try something else, you can make creamy jalapeno, but it's not going to be as good. And life is the same way. God has a recipe for the best way we can live. And we can put cheap substitutions in it, and we can still have life, but it's not going to be the best. It's going to be a little less. 
So think about that in our own life. Man, where do we make substitutions? When we substitute greed for generosity, we miss out on the thrill of giving. When we substitute revenge for forgiveness, we miss out on being free from hatred. When we substitute lying for truth, we miss out on being truly known and having nothing to hide. When we substitute licentiousness for chastity, we miss out on true intimacy. When we substitute sloth for work, we miss out on the satisfaction of a job well done. When we substitute lewdness for purity, we miss out on innocence. When we substitute the worship of the creator for the worship of the creator, we miss out on the greatest relationship we could possibly have. When we substitute narcissism for servant-heartedness, we miss out on our true purpose in life. You and I, we can walk out of here and we can live greedy, revengeful, lying, licentious, slothful, narcissistic lives, but it's not going to be the best. I received an email late last night. A concerned mother sent her kid to one of our events, and during a prayer time had a racist statement thrown at her kid. During a prayer, one student leaned over to the other student, and he, he said his race, and he said, are stupid. And I read that email, and it just breaks my heart. One, for the kid who had to endure that. But secondly, for the kid who said it, because he's missing out. For some reason, he thinks that, hey, being funny is the best. Or being powerful or pushing someone else down is going to make me stronger. Maybe I've got some hatred and some anger. Maybe I've been treated that way, so I'm going to treat someone else like that. But he's missing out on what it truly means to have fellowship and love and servant-heartedness and, and kindness. That kid's putting in a cheap substitution, and he's missing out. So where are you missing out today? Where are the artificial fillers and cheap substitutions in your own life where you're missing out. As we end today, we're going to take communion to be reminded of this fact. That God's plans cannot be thwarted, but the blessings of God can be forfeited. We take communion, we hold those elements, we see this is God's plan for salvation. That Christ would come, that his body would break, that his blood would shed, and that we would be forgiven. Our mess-ups aren't messing up that. Actually, it's because of our mess-ups that that had to happen. And so in that, we can rest and have a peace and a freedom and cherish that. But at the same time, as we take those elements, may we ask ourselves, where am I missing out on God's best? Where is a cheap substitution in my life? So let me pray, and we'll receive communion. God, thank you so much. For the story of Jacob and Esau, two super flawed brothers. God, thank you for giving us the glimpse in Genesis 25 that you would have the older serve the younger. And nothing that Jacob and Esau or Isaac or Rebekah did would ever change that plan. You spoke it and it was set. So God, help us to realize that's with us too. That Jesus came and he died so that we might have life. At the end of all time, you're going to put it all back to rights. And so, God, may we find peace and comfort and hope and just fall into that. But, God, help us see through these flawed individuals that they missed out on so much. God, and I don't want to miss out on your best, and I hope these people don't either. 
So God, help us do some soul work to dig up the places where we've been putting in artificial fillers and cheap substitutions. And may we work and practice to bring those out. God, your grace has covered them. There's no shame in the cross. So we can run to you, God, with those and have forgiveness of our sins and we can experience the new and best life in you, Christ. God, thank you for your sacrifice on the cross that allows us to have that. It's in your name we pray. Amen.